Well, we've, we've made it. For those of you who are uh, keeping track of our progress through Micah, we are beginning chapter 7 today. And you don't need to check. There's no chapter 8. It ends in 7. Um, and we'll, we'll do the first half of chapter 7. Caleb gave that to me while he's on vacation. And uh, he will be back next week to finish the, the whole book um, together. I would like to begin my portion with a word of prayer, if you'd pray with me. Lord Jesus, may you make clear to us your justice and your love today, and may we respond to expression of it in your word. May we respond in faith and in hope. And may we learn to look to you for light in whatever darkness we face. In Jesus' name, amen. The more time I spent with Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, the passage before us today, the more I've recognized its resonance with some of my favorite passages in the New Testament. One of those was our preparation for worship today from John chapter 3, right after John 3.16. Part of the reason is that Micah uses themes that will play prominently in the New Testament. Themes like fruit and light, uh, like in John chapter 3. On top of that, the structure of Micah's prophecy has a distinct good news, or rather bad news first, and then good news later quality. Something that reminds me um, of how Paul likes to set up the gospel Um, First, he establishes the bad news of sin and judgment. Chapter 3 of Romans comes to mind, and we'll uh, encounter that in a few minutes. And then he moves on to the good news of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2 is another clear example. I was tempted to read uh, a big chunk of it, but I'll give you just a couple of pieces. It begins with, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. That's very bad news. Then in verse four, he turns it to good news with the words, but God being rich in mercy. That reminds me of Micah. Then in verse five, which also reminds me of Micah now, Paul writes in Ephesians two, verse five, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Very good news. Now, part of the reason for Micah's bad news, good news structure is that chapter 7 begins with what's called a lament. What's that? Well, the first thing that might come to your mind and the first thing that came to my mind with the word lament is weeping and wailing, maybe? Well, We shouldn't do that. (laughs) Um, We shouldn't actually think of a lament as an outburst of uncontrolled emotion. Rather, a lament is a formal expression of grief or mourning. Laments, not just those found in the Bible, would be used at funerals, for example, as a carefully considered response carefully measured statement of a response to the loss of life of a loved one. But, and this was a little bit of a surprise to me until I thought about it, laments are not all sadness, as we will see. Not all laments are the same, of course, and they don't all have the same structure, but there is a regular form along with uh, some what we could call common elements that often include things like 
the cause for the sorrow, a statement of the cause, like death or some tragedy, a cry for help, an affirmation of where you place your confidence, either a confession of sin or a claim to innocence, and finally, laments most often will end with a declaration of hope in the form of maybe a hymn or a poem. That last bit is where Micah will make his final transition in the book from a message of judgment to a message of mercy. So next week, we get all mercy finally. And so, let's begin here. We, we still make the tra- transition today. Yes. Um, let's begin by looking at the first section of today's passage, verses one through four, which I'm calling Micah's Lament. Listen as I read. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. So Micah introduces his lament with this cry of deep distress, woe is me, reminiscent of Job, I think. He then establishes first, as I said before, the cause of his sorrow, what we could call the harsh reality of the situation. And he begins with this metaphor of the harvest. Now you may be familiar with the practice, uh, the ancient practice that is, of leaving the corners, the edges, of the field unharvested. Why? So that the poor could come um, afterwards, after everything else has been picked, after the main crop has been picked, and they can uh, find the leftovers and um, find food. So Micah envisions coming to the vineyard of God's people, hungry, in hopes of finding someone, anyone who is just and upright. He hungers for godliness but there's nothing to find. The image itself echoes the theme of injustice that is played throughout the book. So Micah speaks as a, represent, as a representative of the remnant who have become so rare that they, they hardly ever cross paths. Each believer is alone, living with the impression that there is no one else in all of creation who seeks justice, no one who loves kindness, no one who walks humbly with God. In his description, about halfway down, Micah brings in once again these corrupt leaders. And the idea may be that those who are in positions of responsibility and authority should be the most likely examples of love and mercy and justice, but they're not, emphatically not. Micah once again calls them out on their greed and corruption. Throughout the book, he's returned to these bad leaders, landowners and princes and judges again and again. But this time, it's all the more clear, I think, that they're not the only problem. The people seem to have followed these unjust leaders and turn out to be just as corrupt. And further, If we're to take Micah literally here, the descent into wickedness includes people and groups of people well beyond the jurisdiction of these corrupt leaders to the ends of the earth even. 
His lament is not localized. The earth is like a vineyard that has been picked clean of fruit. The whole of humanity has gone dark. In imagery that is sadly familiar to us now as we've been walking through the book, he likens the depravity of the world to murderous intent, seeking blood and hunting each other down like animals. He says in verse three that the people not only seek to do evil, but they want to be good at it. The idea here is that people are taking hold of evil with both hands, either giving the sense of full commitment to the task or maybe a sense of careful attention and focus. Like when I tell Arthur to carry a glass of milk with both hands, the people want to make sure that they do all the evil without spilling a drop. Is it true, literally? that everyone in the world is out for blood? Is everyone a murderer? Probably not. But Micah has used such hyperbole before. The force of the message is that such injustice and ungodliness are tantamount to treating each other as prey to be hunted. Everyone sees other people merely as a means to selfish ends, something to be consumed. And so everyone is heading towards judgment. The reference to briars and thorns is not merely that most or the most upright of people are annoying, painful obstacles, but on top of that, they'll burn in the fire really well. The best that Jerusalem's righteousness has to offer is fuel for fiery punishment. And so Micah concludes this section of the lament with a warning that the day of judgment is coming. It's here even. And what he means by the day of your watchmen is probably the day that the watchmen have warned about. The watchmen being the prophets, Micah included. That would make it synonymous with the next phrase, the day of punishment. The reference to their confusion may sound out of place. Maybe it just comes across awkwardly in the English. But if you think of confusion as in the context of being thrown into confusion... It makes more immediate sense. The idea is that the day Micah has warned about will be the cause of panic and chaos. If you can imagine the judgment that will come at the hands of a Babylonian army, for sure the people will be thrown into confusion by the invasion. The expression fog of war comes to mind. But I would argue that Micah is using this impending judgment to resonate with a bigger truth, a bigger lament. This is not just bad news for Micah and his community, but bad news for the whole earth. Judah is a picture of a worldwide cause for lament. And we should probably point out that Micah is not alone in this view of the world, though he feels alone. In fact, Micah's assessment finds a great deal of support in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. Listen to Romans chapter 3. I'll start with verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then in verse 15, because it sounds very much like Micah, their feet are swift to shed blood. He's talking about the world. Paul himself is quoting Psalms and prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah throughout his passage in Romans. But later on, he says more famously, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Micah's lament is a response to the worldwide widespread sin, beginning in Jerusalem, but by prophetic extension to the ends of the earth. With that in mind, I would like to invite you to consider three responses that we can have to the global problem of sin. First, obviously, we have Micah's response. His immediate response in the text, of course, is his lament. He's miserable, brokenhearted, crushed, distraught, and lonely. He's declaring that seeing the world as it truly is, is too much for him to handle. Fortunately, this isn't the end of Micah's lament. We're about halfway through. And so Micah has a fuller response coming. But that's all we have from the first four verses. Second, we have the response of the world at large to the harsh truth as Micah presents it. Remember, Micah is a preacher, a street preacher. He's announcing the bad news to anyone who will listen. And what seems to be the response of the ungodly and crooked to Micah's assessment of their wickedness? Well, we know that initially there was a favorable response. Remember, Hezekiah himself responded. But unfortunately, we also know that that didn't last. Ultimately, we have to say that the response of the world to Micah's message is to ignore him and to continue in unjust, unmerciful, corrupt ways, or worse, to make fun of him. Thirdly, we have the response of God to the sin of the world. And at this point, I have to say, once again, we don't have any good news yet. God will uphold his justice, which is right and good, but that means that mankind will be punished. The day of punishment is coming. That hammer of righteousness will fall on the people and they will be crushed or scattered into confusion. Devastating bad news. But again, take heart that this is not the end of Micah's message of God's response. Praise the Lord. Yeah, you can say hallelujah. (laughs) Even though, it's okay, Caleb's not here. Even though there is more to Micah's message to come, we shouldn't miss this baseline. I mean, we can't rightly understand God's mercy to come apart from God's present justice. We can't understand God's grace apart from God's righteousness. And God's righteousness and God's justice demand judgment, even the day of judgment. And that means even today, we have a reason to join Micah in his lament The weeping that lasts for the night does not contradict the joy that comes with the morning. Instead, it gives cause for the joy. If there's no sorrow, there's no need for salvation. If there's no need for salvation, there's nothing to hope for, nothing to celebrate. So there's a double application here. First, Don't skip the bad news. Consider the demands of a righteous God and look at the world and let your mind react, respond to the day of punishment that's coming. Second, the godly or a godly lament doesn't stop in a state of hopelessness, but goes on. So praise the Lord. Micah is going to continue his lament. And the burden of the coming judgment of God gives context 
to verses five through seven, which I'm calling Micah's confidence. Still within Micah's lament, I think, but Micah's confidence. I'll start with just verses five and six. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So Micah has established the cause for his distress. Now he continues his lament, and he's answering, I see, an implied question. If this is the truth, if there's no one left who is godly, where can I turn? Where can I go for help? And in his answer, he's going to make a contrast between two places we can go for confidence, for security, for a reason to confront the day of judgment with hope, even. He begins by telling us where we might be tempted to turn, but that we will find no hope there. That is, we might say to ourselves, even though the world has gone wicked and unjust and corrupt, surely I can turn to my neighbors and friends. Surely I can turn to the loved ones in my own house. But, as Micah reveals, the widespread infection of sin has penetrated his own household. And as hard as it might be to read and consider the, the reach of verses 1 through 4, verses 5 and 6 are especially hard for us to come to terms with. The problem is sin is far-reaching, not only in breadth, but in depth. It's not just universal, but it's also personal. Micah says, in paraphrase, your neighbor can't be trusted, your best friend will fail you, even your beloved is dangerous, you should be careful what you say around her. And then, Micah shows the family cut into pieces by contempt and dissension, going so far as to say that family members are enemies of one another. I'm waiting to see if anybody will, like, scoot apart. These are strong words. And if we think that we have a close relationship with our family, we can hardly imagine the significance of the family to the Israelite society of Micah's day. But I have a question. Does verse 6 sound familiar? A man's enemies are the men of his own house? Hmm. Well, if it doesn't, I have good news. Lord willing, in a few weeks, when we return to Matthew, we'll read Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus himself quotes Micah. Surprise. Listen to Matthew 10, starting in verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He continues, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We should probably say quickly that Micah's point, and Jesus' point too, for that matter, is is not that we should distrust our families. I'm actually glad that you didn't all separate from one another. He's not trying to drive a wedge between husband and wife, or between parent and child. Um, You should, certainly, build up a culture of trust in your home. Let me say that clearly. Please, Tension and bitterness and strife in the home are not the way things should be. This is not prescriptive, but descriptive. The point is not that members of my house are enemies, as if they are really, I don't know, spies working for a secret authority to undermine the peace of the home. The point is that seeking justice 
and loving kindness and walking humbly with your God is a battle. And you will struggle the hardest to hold the line when it comes to your own flesh and blood. Because they too are a part of this worldwide collapse into sin. But on top of that, the family knows you best. They should. They know your weaknesses. You can't pretend to be mostly righteous around them. They see right through it. And in all likelihood, they will use it against you. Either by enabling you to continue in your sin or by reminding me, reminding you and me, how far we fall short. You've probably heard the joke. Everybody has that one annoying friend. If you don't, it's probably you. Or we could say, every family has at least one crazy, right? If yours doesn't, it's probably you. I, for one, am happy to declare that my family has plenty of crazy. Thank you very much. But what I'm getting at is this. Micah's message has a hidden barb. We can talk about how the world's broken, how even our family is a liability, but when Micah says, put no trust in a neighbor or a friend, remember that you too are someone's neighbor. You too are someone's friend. Members of your own house are your enemies. Well, you are a member of your house too. Don't just look around at everyone else. You will betray a neighbor's trust. You will fail your friends. You are dangerous to your own beloved. Why? Because you too have the sickness. You can't place your ultimate confidence in those closest to you, and they can't place their confidence in you. I cannot turn to them to save me because they need saving themselves. But if I think about it for a second, I will realize the same is true when my family looks to me. I'm part of the worldwide collapse into sin. I don't want to be an enemy to my family, but I cannot save them any more than they can save me. Now you may ask, maybe some of you, what if my family's not filled with contempt and strife? Well, I would say it's certainly a good thing that a family lives in peace, yes. But a family that watches each other wander away from the Lord for the sake of avoiding conflict is still playing the part of an enemy. And so I would ask, if that's the case, that your home is peaceful, what is the basis of your peace? Is it a mutual goal of growth in godliness? Well, all that to say, praise the Lord if your family is a model of trust and if you build each other up in faith, hope, and love. But just make sure that your peace isn't an illusion. More likely, your family knows tension, especially if your family is a mixture of believers and unbelievers, as most are. Consider this. If the sin of those closest to you, say at Thanksgiving dinner, when you all gather together, makes you angry, you're playing a part in Micah's vision. And it's not the part of the godly. In fact, that anger with your brother, sister, mother, father, child, is murder in your heart, Jesus says. So check your heart. Repent of your anger. Ask the Lord to break your heart instead. 
approaching your lost friends, your lost neighbors, your lost loved ones from the direction of a lament will change your tone. In fact, the same is true of enemies in the broader world. Who is your enemy? I could just as well ask, who are you angry at today? Turn from anger to sorrow over lostness. See if a broken heart will prove a better platform for you to speak from. And that said, I know that even when I am deeply moved by the lostness of those closest to me, I can still struggle to speak to them. I can still hear judgment in my voice. Even when I'm consciously trying to plead with them, All I can say is that I need more practice speaking the truth in love and humility coming out of a place of lament. Maybe you are the same. As I said, Micah begins these verses by answering this implied question. If the world has descended to this state of injustice, where can I turn? So far, he's given The negative answer, don't look to your neighbor, not to your friend, not even to your family. And up to this point, as I've said, verses one through six, we could say are full of bad news. But verse seven, Micah tells us the place we can turn and the place where he himself has turned. I told you at the beginning that a lament will often conclude with a note of hope. And so this whole passage hinges on verse 7. Verse 7 seems to both conclude the lament and set up the verses that follow. And as we will see, the confidence of verse 7 flows into the hope of verses 8 through 10. So where does Micah turn? You've been waiting patiently. Where does... Where does he place his trust and confidence? Listen to verse seven. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah's answer to the hopelessness of living in a fallen world is to look to the Lord. Now, if Micah looked to the injustice around him, to the selfishness of human nature, to the corruption of the social systems that hold sway over the government and culture, to the wickedness and darkness in his own heart. If Micah based his confidence on that raw data, his lament would be over and he would end in despair. But Micah says he will look to the Lord. Now, there may be a a tiny bit of irony in that declaration because Micah looks to the Lord, but he can't see the Lord. Nevertheless, he knows the Lord. He knows what the Lord has done. He knows what the Lord has promised. Micah knows the word of the Lord. Though friends and family will fail, the Lord is the God of his salvation And God hears his children. And Micah says he will wait for the God of his salvation. Again, a little bit of wordplay here. The word wait is a callback to the word watchman. Micah is literally saying that he will watch for God to bring his salvation. Now think about this for a moment with me. First, I want to invite you to enjoy this shift of perspective from watching and waiting for God's coming judgment to watching and waiting for God's coming salvation. Micah is a watchman for both. His book has had this binary focus, God's judgment and God's mercy, and throughout, the message has been the certainty of both. The day of judgment is coming for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. The day of judgment for all of the earth is just as certain. But listen, 
This is the same Micah who earlier in chapter 5 looked forward to the Messiah who would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah who would shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. I mention this because while we could interpret this statement about the coming rescue from uh, captivity, from exile, that's not all it is. There is that immediate reference, yes. But there's another salvation that Micah is waiting for. A day of salvation that Abraham looked forward to. An exodus that Moses anticipated. A day that the watchmen of the kingdom have seen from a distance. And Micah sees from a distance. Micah knows that God can save his people from any worldly army. But there is another battle going on against the powers of sin and darkness. Micah is watching for the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus, even though he doesn't know his name yet. What I'm saying is that we have here a beautiful picture of Old Testament faith in Christ. Let me say that again. Old Testament faith in Christ. Salvation from God's judgment for sin is only by faith in Christ. This may, at first, present a problem. Indeed, many see it as a problem for Christianity. Someone asked me just the other day, what about those who lived before Jesus came? How could they trust Christ? He hadn't even been born yet. The answer is found here. Micah trusts in Christ by waiting. That is, by looking forward to Christ. By saying, essentially, I believe God will make a way to overcome my sin. On this side of the cross, we trust in Christ by looking back to what has already been accomplished. But in both cases... Salvation is ours by faith, whether by looking forward, like Micah, or looking back, like us. Just as the lament has had an awareness of the immediate threat of judgment, while at the same time Micah has expanded the vision of that judgment to include the ends of the earth, likewise, the rest of the passage addresses that immediate hope of salvation as well as the ultimate salvation from God's wrath found in Christ. So Micah trusts in the Lord, even if he's the only one left who does. Though we should probably remember that Micah is preaching this message. He's calling for anyone who will listen to look to the Lord as well. So on the one hand, it's difficult for us maybe to compare the profound darkness of Micah's day with ours. There are those in our present world who live closer to the distress of certain defeat by an imminent military attack. But few of us, I think, have known such misery. That said... We do know darkness. In fact, with with all the information that we can access in a moment, we know more about the darkness of the world than Micah ever could. And we know confusion. We know loneliness. And we all can suffer from hopelessness just as well. So I like to say one of the themes of my house is don't be surprised when we do things differently than everyone else. I would encourage you to remember Micah 7-7 and seek to have a constant but as for me attitude. Don't be surprised when the world is thrown into confusion around you. Don't be surprised when chaos drives the majority Seeming, seemingly everyone, to despair. Even if you have to suffer loss and defeat 
look to the Lord. As for me, I will look to the Lord. And so, after verses 5 through 7, after Micah has established where he places his confidence, his faith, we could say, he will explain what that confidence means and how his hopelessness is overcome. So finally, we have Micah's hope. Listen to verses 8 through 10. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. One thing that has been helpful for me as I wrestled with these surprising verses was when I realized that there is a shift between verse 7 and verse 8. In verses 1 through 7, Micah is speaking for himself as a representative. In verses 8 through 10, Micah actually speaks as the community, perhaps to be understood as Jerusalem or maybe the remnant. This view is especially helpful when we address the reference to the enemy in verses 8 and 10. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's lost in the English until we read, shame will cover her. Surprise. The enemy is a she. Some of you are not surprised. You might be more surprised, though, to hear that the speaker is a she as well. Now, this is lost in the English, but the enemy's taunt is, where is the Lord your God? And that your is in the feminine. Hmm, didn't see that coming. What all that means is that Micah is speaking for one group of people. We could say Lady Jerusalem, as many of the commentators do. And he's addressing another group, the enemy. Forces of darkness, Babylon, we could make a list. Now that I've said that, I find it especially compelling that Micah identifies himself with the community in that way especially after lamenting the pervasiveness of sin throughout that community, right? It's a fascinating way to speak about the experience of the individual and the community as one. But what strikes me the most is how verses 8 and 9 resonate so deeply with what I can only think to call gospel insight. Verse 8 is likely a reference to the fall and restoration of Jerusalem. But the acceptance of the consequences of sin is remarkable. The darkness would represent loss of home, loss of possessions, loss of status, loss of everything. But even in that darkness, Micah says, the Lord will be a light to me. The woe is me of the lament is over. The prophet's distress was spent at the spread of sin against the Lord. His distress was greater because of sin rather than the, the discipline from the Lord. As he said, I will wait on the God of my salvation. So the in times of distress, this oft-heard, why me, response is notably absent. There is no place for self-pity among the children of the Lord, even when they're facing his discipline. 
All of this is assuming, in fact, that God will not give his people victory in the traumatic worldly battle that is fast approaching. Wow. And yet he says, the Lord will be a light to me. I don't know about you, but I don't have many opportunities to consider my response to devastating loss. Does that thought catch your attention? Perhaps we would do well to consider the calamity that we read about. To give thought to the disasters that are happening in our world today. And to search our hearts for how we might respond if we found ourselves in darkness. If the Lord was your only light, would that be enough? Moving on to verse 9, we see how the people of God suffer a measure of judgment from the Lord and receive it as discipline. Such clarity. As if to say, I have no basis to make demands from my God. His punishment against me is just. Whatever trials I must pass through are not according to chance. The Lord does not lose track of me, much less is he overcome by these forces of darkness that harass me. I have to put my confidence in the Lord. I will trust him. From the perspective of Micah and the remnant, suffering is far from being an indication of God's absence as much as the purifying work of God's very present holiness. Continuing his meditation of hope, Micah, knowing that he has no defense, declares that the end of the Lord's indignation will come only when the Lord himself advocates for him. And we know that we have Christ as our advocate. Interestingly, when Micah writes that the Lord will execute justice, it's the same expression that he used back in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where God's expectation of man is to do justice, to execute judgment. In a way, we could say that God is fulfilling his own righteous demands on behalf of his people. Micah has already said that the Lord will be his light in the darkness, and he returns to that image of light at the end of verse 9. This time, the light is not hope or persevering faith, but the image is of full restoration. When Micah's hope is ultimately fulfilled, and the people's faith in the face of their day of punishment is vindicated. Now, of course, Micah sees all this playing out in the exile and in the return, the restoration of Jerusalem. So the vindication in the immediate future is perhaps the return from exile. But can you see how so clearly this scenario could just as well narrate the vindication of the believer who is transferred from darkness to light? Or perhaps the church, as we look forward, which will ultimately be vindicated at the return of Christ. I see these verses echoing throughout the gospel in the New Testament. One way both the redemption of the believer and the victory of the church connect with Micah's vision is actually, surprisingly, in the words, my enemy will see. At the end of the exile, as well as at the return of Christ, the vindication of the Lord will be seen. I'll be frank, verse 10 has been difficult for me. I realized very quickly that I couldn't read it as Micah's vindictive bragging, as if he were a middle schooler turning to Babylon saying, I told you so. Instead, I've come to read it like this. God's justice will triumph. God's justice will triumph. 
And Micah is juxtaposing these two attitudes. His own faith and the faith of the enemy. The enemy doesn't expect God to bring about justice, much less to rescue his people. The enemy's taunt, where is the Lord your God, questions God, God's very power to rescue his people. Micah, on the other hand, doesn't sacrifice God's justice for his rescue nor does he shrug his shoulders at God's justice, thinking that there's nothing really to be rescued from. In short, Micah believes that God will be vindicated in justice and that God will rescue him. God will be vindicated in his justice and in his mercy. Once again, I I want to encourage you to make sure that you are not playing the part of the enemy here. As you consider your sin today, are you confident that God will be vindicated both in his justice and his mercy? Or do you diminish God's justice? Do you question whether God would make such a big deal of sin? so that you don't need as radical a rescue as Christ's death on the cross. Or perhaps you're painfully aware of your sin and you don't trust in God's salvation that it could possibly reach you. Without using quite the same words as the enemy, you are just the same questioning whether God has enough power to save. Your sin is not more powerful than the grace of God. Amen. If you will believe, to see the God of the gospel is to see how the cross, Christ, satisfied the demands of righteousness, the demands of God's righteous justice, as well as his mercy and love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that we have fallen. We know that we have loved the darkness at times more than the light. We know that we have deceived our neighbor, we have failed our friend, we have been a danger to our loved ones, we have been our own enemy. And Lord, we also know that you are just, and we celebrate that you're righteous and just and holy, but we know that your justice means We're under judgment. But you are also rich in mercy. And you have set your love on us so that even when we were dead in sin, you made us alive together with Christ. You satisfied both your justice and your mercy through the cross. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.